Hey, it's Mel Robbins. Let's cut to the chase. There is a change you want to make right now, but you're waiting to feel motivated. You don't need motivation. You've got me. You can change your life anytime you want. And when you're ready, the Mel Robbins podcast is here to help you with inspiration and simple science-backed tools to help you create a better life. Listen to me and you'll feel motivated, all right. Listen and follow the Mel Robbins podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. War is raging overseas. Deep divides over the U.S. role are growing. House Republicans are in chaos. And the former president is preparing to take the stand. I'm going to discuss all of that, plus brand new polling on the presidential race with the chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal. Plus, his two adult sons testified in New York last week, and Donald Trump himself will be under oath in New York tomorrow. The in-house law firm of Andrew Weissman and Neil Katiel is standing by for a full preview. And later, Stacey Abrams hasn't spoken extensively about the indictments in Fulton County until now. I asked her about the strength of the case, the stakes for her home state, and yes, her own political future. Okay, I hope you're sitting down for what I'm about to say, because you might find it a little disorienting. Here goes. We are exactly one year out from Election Day 2024. One year, exactly. And look, I know that for the better part of this decade, we've heard a lot of talk about certain elections being the most consequential of our lifetimes. But this one actually kind of feels like it is. A brand new poll out today from The New York Times shows Donald Trump leading President Biden in five out of six swing states. It also shows Biden leading Trump by just one point among young voters across those states. There's a while to go, but you still have to pay attention to these numbers even at this point. So that's the state of the race, at least according to that one poll. And here are the stakes, according to Joe Biden. There comes a time, maybe every six to eight generations, where the world changes in a very short time. We are at that time now. We are. And I think what happens in the next uh, two, three years is going to determine what the world looks like for the next five or six decades. What is happening now and over the next few years and what happens a year from today will determine what the world looks like for decades. And what is happening now is a pretty high level of dysfunction in Washington and growing divisions across the country. A Republican-run House is barreling toward shutting down the government in just a few weeks and completely failing at the same time to support our allies overseas. They passed an aid package this week for Israel, but not for Ukraine, not for humanitarian aid in Gaza, and not without tying the bill to cuts to the IRS, which, by the way, actually only adds to the deficit, because if you go don't go after tax sheets, they're not going to pay their taxes. In other words, the bill's dead on arrival in the Senate, meaning any much-needed aid will be delayed. And if Speaker Mike Johnson's delay here wasn't bad enough, there is also Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville, who is continuing to block military promotions, which affects readiness in the Middle East. Even Republicans are now fed up, as they should be, given the state of the crisis that we're watching overseas. On the ground in the region today, Secretary of State Tony Blinken met with Palestinian Authority President Abbas in the West Bank. As the Biden administration privately presses Israeli officials to take additional steps to avoid civilian casualties in Gaza. This is all happening as protests about U.S. support for Israel break out across the country, with thousands gathering in D.C. this weekend. 
We're also seeing a sudden and disturbing surge in hate crimes amid the war in Israel. Anti-Semitic incidents have risen about 400 percent since the October 7th terrorist attack. And anti-Islamic hate crimes have risen almost 200 percent. Cornell University actually canceled classes on Friday, citing the extraordinary stress its campus and its students have been under amid violent anti-Semitic threats. A Pakistani-American student at Johns Hopkins University just detailed being targeted, surrounded, and accosted by other students for being perceived as pro-Palestinian. Now, that is just a taste of the divisions we have seen this week. If we look one week back, we saw deep divisions over gun legislation in the wake of the latest horrific mass shooting in Lewiston, Maine. If we look one week ahead, we will see stark divisions over abortion rights as voters head to the polls in just two days in states including Virginia, Ohio, and Pennsylvania. This is the kind of country the next president will have to deal with. They will be faced with big problems, both here and around the world. So the question one year from now is, who is best equipped to lead the country through wartime, through turmoil? And between now and then, with so much division here, how do we grapple with the crisis there? Joining me now is Democratic Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal. She's the chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. Congresswoman, thank you so much for joining me today. I wanted to start with your calls for the ceasefire in Gaza, given the horrific impact on civilians we've all been watching. There, there have been a range of calls for ceasefires and different versions of it. So I just wanted to ask you, when you call for a ceasefire, are you saying you want Israel's military operation to end full stop and not restart? Are there parameters of a military campaign that you would be comfortable with at any point? Yeah, thanks, Jen, and thanks for having me on. Um, when I call for a ceasefire, that means a stoppage immediately of Israel's bombing and attacks, uh, airstrikes, as well as the ground attacks, um, in order to make sure that we can get the hostages back and that we can get humanitarian aid into Gaza and that we have a plan for how to move forward. I don't think the question is about whether we should allow Israel to take out Hamas and whether all the international allies would be in favor of taking out Hamas. That is absolutely true. The question is how to do that. And there is increasing toll, both with civilians in, in Gaza, uh, you know, violence in the West Bank, but also a question of whether when you kill thousands and thousands of Palestinians and thousands of children and you bomb refugee camps, even if you are taking out some Hamas leaders, and it isn't clear to me exactly who is being taken out, but let's say you are, the reality is if you keep doing that, you will radicalize the population and another Hamas will arise. Most of the top leaders of Hamas are not even in Gaza, they're in other countries. And so I think we have to be clear that uh, we need a ceasefire. And when I say ceasefire, I understand that you can't ever have a permanent ceasefire. That is, that's not really... Um, you know, that's not really realistic. But what you do is you call for a ceasefire. It is a negotiated settlement, which is why I say that um, you can at least have a cessation of hostilities immediately. But I do think that we need to recognize that this crisis is not going to end and Hamas is not going to be taken out unless there is a political situation that allows both Israelis and Palestinians to coexist with self-determination um, next to each other. And, and that is something that can't happen while Israel is continuing to bomb and kill innocent civilians in Gaza. 
There's no question there needs to be a diplomatic solution here, Congresswoman. And it sounds like you are open to Israel using military action if it's more targeted, if, if, if the hostages are out, if there's assistance in. You're not determining that, but you're open to resumption of that. I did want to ask you, as Speaker Emerita Nancy Pelosi said a ceasefire is a gift to Hamas. And Hillary Clinton said the same thing, and that people demanding a ceasefire don't understand Hamas. It sounds like you don't agree with that. But what would you say about their views? I just don't agree with that. And I think if you look at the history of how these conflicts have happened, and even, you know, I'm not talking about progressives who have said this. I'm talking about national security experts, experts on terrorism, who have written extensively about instances where countries have gone in, including Israel, into Lebanon, including um, the United States, uh, you know, trying going into Iraq. And what happens when you do not—when when you essentially go in without a plan for— Mm. Uh, for how you move forward. You might succeed, Jen, in the immediate short term. You may be able to declare victory of taking out one leader or another. You do not solve the problem. And I think this is very important. And I also think it's important to recognize that the United States is increasingly isolated by saying that we are not ready to call for a ceasefire, that we are standing with Israel no matter what. That allows impunity for Israel to continue to do what it has done uh, and is doing to Palestinians, killing children. I mean, Jen, I just have to say, one Palestinian child is being murdered every 10 minutes at the rate of killings that is happening now. Mm-hmm. Nobody has forgotten what Hamas has done to Israel on October 7th. I have condemned that. It is horrific. It is a terrorist act. Israel absolutely should, and, and the allies, including the United States, should go after Hamas, should try to end, uh, you know, take out Hamas and, and find other solutions. But this is not the way to do it. And The United States is the largest backer, Jen, of military aid to Israel. The idea that we cannot do anything about what Israel is doing, I do not think uh, is—it's just not credible. Um, The reality is— that if Israel continues to go in that direction, I think taxpayers who are paying for that mm-hmm. deserve to be able to know that the United States is holding Israel accountable to what President Biden has rightly said in calling for Israel to follow international humanitarian law. They are not doing that right now, Jen. Yeah, uh, con- Congresswoman, I think this is such a complicated, heartbreaking, difficult issue, which is why it's so important to discuss it with people like you. I did want to ask you about, because there's a yeah. lot of an imp- there's a lot of impact here at home, as we're seeing. And a friend of yours, Congresswoman mm-hmm. Rashida Tlaib, released a video on Friday about the war. I'm guessing, of course, you've seen it, but in case our viewers haven't, I just want to play a piece of it. We will remember in 2024. Now, you've been very outspoken about the need for a ceasefire, about the horrors, which we've talked about quite a bit as well in Gaza. But she's accusing President Biden of supporting what she described as the genocide of Palestinians in Gaza. I mean, do you agree with that description? You know, Jen, this is heartbreaking. Rashida is the only Palestinian-American woman in the United States Congress. She has a grandmother who lives 
in Israel, in the West Bank. And the reality is that she is bringing her lived experience to bear. I don't think we can say we want diversity of views, but then not listen to what those views are. I think genocide is a very, very complicated term. I believe that we have to do everything we can to elect Joe Biden president. You know that I have been an extremely strong supporter of President Biden on the domestic front. And um, I think it's important that we recognize, though, that the reality, and I have said this to the White House privately for many weeks and then recently publicly, because I think it is important to recognize that we have a very divided country, as you well know. You have mm. said that polls really don't reflect where people are. I agree with you. But I will tell you, this is the first time, Jen, that I have felt like the 2024 election is in great trouble for the president and for our democratic control, which is essential to moving forward. Because these young people, Muslim Americans, Arab Americans, but also young people, see this conflict as a moral conflict yeah. and a yeah. moral crisis. And they, they are not going to be brought back to the table easily with, um, you know, if we do not address this. Uh, no, no doubt, Congressman. I think we are seeing a generational response to what's happening overseas. Uh, but language also matters. And genocide is defined as the intentional destruction of an entire ethnic or religious group. And a lot of people do listen to statements made by members of Congress. So I just want to be clear. Do you agree that in the, with a description of, gen of, of this as genocide and, and the president's role in that? I am not willing to say that yet, but I will just tell you that Rashida is not the first person to say this. There are credible reports from agencies across the world and, uh, you know, the United, uh, the United Nations has said we are hurtling towards the, towards the genocide of Palestinians. That is not an isolated view, but I think, um, it is important for us to focus on what is actually here at the core, which is over 9,000, I think it's somewhere near 9,300 Palestinians have been killed. Over 3,000 children plus 6,600 mm -hmm. Palestinian children killed. And I think that you, where are 2.3 million Palestinians going to go? Where are they going to go? The attacks on the refugee camps, we are talking about a half a mile um, for, for this refugee camp. That is the, the density of how many people live in that area. When you do, when you release bombs that are actually 2,000 pound bombs in a dense area, which is something the United States has signed on and said, we will not do that. But Israel has not said that. That is what Israel did in the Jabalia refugee camp. Two, 2,000 pound bombs, Jen. And so the horrors are, are, are terrible. I think uh, there are families of hostages, Israeli hostages, who have gone to the ICC and said what Hamas did uh, is is also um, a war crime and mm -hmm. qualifies as as genocide. And I think we have to make sure that we are taking into account all the innocent civilians, Israeli and Palestinian. But at the end of the day, international humanitarian law exists because we have learned from our past that you cannot solve these problems by targeting innocent civilians. And the United <laughs> States has to be very, very clear about this.
Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, thank you for joining me for all of your clarity um, and for speaking out about these issues. Coming up next, Donald Trump is set to testify in his own fraud trial tomorrow in New York City. The law firm of Weissman and Katiel are going to tell us what they're expecting to see. And later, my wide-ranging interview with Stacey Abrams. I'll ask her about the Fulton County indictments, whether Trump should serve time in prison if he's convicted, and what she thinks the political landscape looks like. One- hey, it's Mel Robbins. Let's cut to the chase. There is a change you want to make right now, but you're waiting to feel motivated. You don't need motivation. You've got me. You can change your life anytime you want. And when you're ready, the Mel Robbins podcast is here to help you with inspiration and simple science-backed tools to help you create a better life. Listen to me and you'll feel motivated, all right. Listen and follow the Mel Robbins podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, parents. Greenlight is here to take one big thing off your to-do list, teaching your kids about money. With a Greenlight debit card and money app of their own, kids and teens learn to earn, save, and invest. You can send money instantly, set flexible controls, and get real-time notifications of your kids' money activity. Set up chores and put allowance on autopilot to reward them for their hard work. Then learn about the world of money together. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com slash podcast. You're out from Election Day. We're back after a quick break. Tomorrow, Donald Trump will take the witness stand and the New York civil fraud trial against him two of his adult children, and their company. His testimony comes about a month into this trial, and to this point, things have not exactly been going well for the Trumps. Even before it started, the presiding judge had already ruled on the most critical question in the case, finding that Trump did blatantly defraud banks and insurers. That's already been determined. All the way back in September, Judge Ngoron knocked down a number of the Trump legal team's arguments, writing, quote, in the defendant's world, Restrictions can evaporate into thin air. All illegal acts are untimely if they stem from one untimely act. And square footage is subjective. That is a fantasy world, not the real world. Those are the judge's words. Well, Trump has now taken that fantasy world that he's living in and brought it into the courtroom. He's already been hit with a gag order and found fined twice for his attacks on the judge's staff. On Friday, the judge expanded that gag order to include Trump's attorneys, who have repeatedly accused the judge's top law clerk of bias against them, desperately referencing a Breitbart piece about a complaint from a random Trump supporter. That's the basis. Not that's that that's not unusually that's not usually the conduct, of course, of a serious lawyer. I mean, this isn't a serious approach. But it's part of a pattern we've seen from Donald Trump and his team again and again and again. His defense is basically to gaslight, to repeat a lie so often and so forcefully in the hope that his people eventually believe it, despite all the evidence to the contrary. As he once said in 2018, what you're seeing and what you're reading is not what's happening. Really? Now, we've seen this tactic work for Trump in the world of politics, calling investigations witch hunts, insisting on perfect phone calls, attacking prosecutors as deranged, and telling anyone who will listen about stolen elections. And his people tend to follow him. But in a court of law, where the entire point is to settle the facts of a matter based on the law, Trump's usual strategy is clearly falling short. He and his team have insisted that their fraudulent activity was just 
business as usual. Nothing to see here. This is just the real estate business in New York, and you all just don't get it out there. For instance, Trump's lead lawyer said that the inflated value of Trump's assets simply reflects the change in a complex, sophisticated real estate development corporation. That's it. Nothing to see here. And for Trump brothers John Jr. and Eric, this isn't on them, two leaders of the company. It's all just a classic case of accountants being accountants. Before even having a day in court, I'm apparently guilty uh, of fraud for relying on my accountants to do, wait for it, accounting. I just don't seem to recall anything about this. You know, it's, I pour concrete, I operate properties. I don't focus on appraisals. For all of their talk about pouring concrete, I mean, give me a break with that, and not focusing on appraisals, Evidence was presented that points to their direct knowledge about the fraudulent financial statements. Their direct knowledge, of course. Lawyers for the Attorney General showed that in March of 2017, Forbes magazine had reached out to John John Jr. asking why his father had claimed his New York City penthouse was 33,000 square feet when it really is 11,000. That's quite a difference. Don Jr. then passed along those questions to a Trump organization lawyer, noting that there was a, quote, insane amount of stuff there. One week later, the younger Donald Trump still signed off on a statement that falsely claimed the penthouse was 30,000 square feet. So basically, he echoed the lie, even though he knew better. And then there's Eric Trump, who initially testified that he didn't know anything about the financial statements until recently. When confronted by the evidence, however, he acknowledged that he was aware of them as far back as 2013. See, the Trumps can gaslight to the cameras outside the courthouse. They may do that tomorrow. They can post online about their complaints and conspiracies, which they certainly will still do. They can describe Trump's mood as defiant, which is how they're describing how he's feeling going into tomorrow. But ultimately, that playbook doesn't work inside the confines of a courthouse. And this strategy that has worked for Donald Trump so well in politics might end up actually costing him big time in this case. Our in-house law firm of Weissman and Katiel is here to discuss all of it. And they're coming up after a very quick break. As we look ahead to Donald Trump's testimony in New York tomorrow, it's worth remembering that he gave a taped deposition in this case last year. And during the deposition, he invoked the Fifth Amendment more than 440 times, refusing to answer every question over four long and repetitive hours. I declined to answer the question. Yeah, I declined to answer the question. Yeah, I declined to answer the question. Same answer, same answer. Same answer, same answer, same answer, same answer, same answer, same answer, same answer. Neil Katyal is the former acting U.S. Solicitor General. Andrew Weissman is the former general counsel at the FBI and the law firm now joins me now. So, Neil, I'm going to start with you because we know that Trump taking the fifth in a civil trial is different and it could certainly make him look even more guilty. What what is better, him answering questions, taking the fifth in your view? It's a Hobson's choice. I think both are a problem. So, Jen, I think you're absolutely right at the start to say this trial is not going well for Donald Trump. Um, There's no doubt about that. The judge has already basically found fraud. Now, Trump has a choice tomorrow. Does he continue the 440 times of asserting the Fifth Amendment or not? The case for him of taking the Fifth Amendment is he's basically going to probably perjure himself one Mm -hmm. way or another if he takes a stand. And he also is known for giving meandering testimony. So in that deposition, 
session that lasted like seven hours or something like that. And he just kind of randomly says different things about different, you know, at all times. And the Gene Carroll thing, you know, he went so far as to say, well, if you're a star historically, then you're allowed to grope women. So, you know, if he does actually take the stand, I expect the New York Attorney's General's office to basically let it give him a lot of rope. On the other hand, if he doesn't take the stand, mm-hmm. then New York law, because it's a civil case, not a criminal, says the judge can infer everything against you. So you can read Trump's silence to be the absolute worst. So, you know, I, I can't imagine having a client like this. So it's a little hard You're for me. You're probably not a candidate for hiring you, or nor would you. A- Andrew, what do you think here? I mean, so I guess he could not take the stand, I guess you're saying, even though he's scheduled to. He could, you know, plead the fifth 40, 400 times again. What, what do you think his best tactic here is? Well, he obviously, he has to appear in court. He is subpoenaed as a witness, so he mm. will show up. Um, whether he decides to answer all of the questions, I think, remains to be seen. And I think some of that goes to the strategy that the attorney general's office uses. Now, as you noted, there are a lot of things that they could cross-examine him on that go to the size of his apartment, um, how he valued Mar-a-Lago. I mean, there's sort of black and white issues that I think it's extremely hard for him to come up with a consistent theory that's not going to get him into a lot of trouble. But they also could go big in the questioning and ask him about all of the lies that are laid out, according to the government, in the D.C. case and in the Florida case. In other words, it's relevant that um, the attorney general's office says they are dealing with somebody who sort of lies, you know, as we live and breathe. Um, And so I think when it gets to questioning that might go big, he could take the fifth and say, you know, if it relates directly to those outstanding criminal cases, I'm not going to answer. But I think um, I think he really is going to be sort of forced to answer uh, strategically, because, as Neil says, if he doesn't answer, this whole case is over. Um, The court gets to say, I'm fighting against you just based on your Fifth Amendment. So these cases are all very different. There's a lot of cases Donald Trump is navigating right now. But if you're Jack Smith, Fonnie Willis, what event, what are you watching for? They'll watch each other's cases. What are you looking for? Yeah, so I think you're looking tomorrow? for two things. One procedure, one substance on procedure, just which trials are going when, because they all have to kind of work uh, in some sort of sequence. So with respect to the trial tomorrow, that's not fair because that's already started. And I think tomorrow you're just watching who is this guy, Donald Trump, a different animal when he's on the stand than he is when he's out in front of the cameras. My suspicion is not, but Trump is afraid. He's always been afraid of being questioned, particularly under oath. I mean, the guy's afraid of being questioned, you know, in the Republican debate. So that's why he's not going. And we all know that, you know, the truth is not exactly an element of Republican debates. But nonetheless, he's afraid of even showing up there. So given that, I think they're going to be watching what kinds of things might we get him to answer in a court. Andrew, real quick before we let you two go, what do you expect the headline to be tomorrow when the day wraps? I think it's going to be about sort of his incredible answers about the size of the um, Mar-a-Lago sort of valuation, about the size of his Trump Tower apartment. I think those are such concrete, clear things that I think that's something that newspapers, uh, reporters are going to latch on to because everyone can understand sort of clear black and white issues. And I don't see a way out for Trump in giving an explanation here. 
Andrew Weissman, Neil Katiel, thank you both for joining us. Lots to watch tomorrow, and we'll be on tomorrow night at 8. We'll talk all about it. Next, one-on-one is Stacey Abrams. She has some thoughts about whether a conviction could change anyone's mind about former President Donald Trump. And she shares her perspective on Georgia Governor Brian Kemp and what we do and should expect from public officials. That conversation is coming up after this very quick break. Well, there are lots of factors that led to Joe Biden's victory in Georgia in 2020. One of them was undoubtedly a massive effort to drive up voter turnout led by Stacey Abrams and a network of activists. One of the places where that effort paid off was in Fulton County, which is now the home to the historic indictment of Donald Trump and 18 co-defendants. Stacey Abrams had not spoken extensively about this case until I sat down with her for a wide-ranging conversation this week. Let's dig into Fulton County, because you have not spoken extensively about uh, the case against Donald Trump and his co-defendants. So let me just start with what is your reaction to the indictment? I believe in our justice system. And as a former attorney, I respect very much the importance of allowing the judicial system to play itself out, to let the process unfold. I think that the district attorney has done an assiduous job of building the cases that she's built. We have seen four people plead guilty uh, early on, and we know that there are additional defendants, including the former president. The responsibility we have is to keep our eye on the ball, which is that this is about election conspiracy and attempting to undermine how our process works. No politician is entitled to win. I I know that personally. (laughs) But we are all entitled to trust the process. And when that process is threatened by outside actors, who are willing to undermine election security and undermine and commit fraudulent acts to achieve their ends, then they are thwarting the will of the people. Yes, we have the right to question systems, absolutely. But what we do not have the right to do is manufacture information and manufacture crises in order to achieve political ends. So you have, of course, run for office in Georgia. You've hinted that you don't necessarily think that Republicans in Georgia will be moved by these indictments or this process unless there's something significant that happens. I analyze or I heard that or it analyzed it as, as hearing that as a conviction. Do you think something like that could play out in the court system between now and next November? Is that even possible? I think the, the speed of the trials will be entirely determined by the judge and the evidence presented and the defense is presented. And we don't know what the defense is going to do. I would say, though, that in politics, people have fairly hardened belief systems. And those who have seen the former president in action over the last now seven years, they know who he is. I'm not certain that the outcome of this case itself will shift their beliefs because it's a question of whether you believe in him, whether you like what he did when he was in office. Those are two very different Mm. dynamics. And there are those who may revile his behavior but celebrate his outcomes. And that's the place where I think no one who shares my political values should get comfortable. We should not presume that the inputs necessarily connect to the outputs. Mm. And there are those who may not care for the persona of Donald Trump or even his actions, but who believe that he is the standard bearer for what they want to see. And that's the place where if I'm doing political analysis, we should focus. We need to focus on what good can we get done and not presume that a conviction is going to necessarily change the belief system of someone who really likes what he does. That is such an interesting point, because intellectually, many people who, who share our views might say, well, if he's convicted, 
then that will change people's minds. In your view, you're, it sounds like you're saying it may not. It probably won't. I grew up in a region of the country where politicians got indicted a lot and still kept their jobs or came back. So. There are certain minimum requirements in Georgia law under the RICO statute, as you referenced, including jail time. But we are talking about a former president here. There's, there's a range of views on this. If he is convicted, do you think he should serve the minimum jail requirement? My belief is that there is a stature and a status associated with holding the highest office in the land, but that does not exonerate you or exempt you from having to face punishment. I would argue that depending on what he is convicted of, if he is convicted, there will certainly be a conversation about how to hold him accountable. And if jail time is appropriate, I believe that the court and the prosecution will negotiate what that looks like. And determine, and but nobody's above the law. No one is above the law. However, we recognize that there are different needs for communities. There are people who are given not protections because they are better people, but protections because they face different outcomes. I think it is disingenuous to believe that a former president is going to be treated the same in terms of incarceration. We have to understand that there are threats that come along with having held that job that will have to be taken into account when determining punishment. So it's not clear. And they'll determine that through the legal process. It's, you're saying you would be comfortable with their determination. Absolutely. I want to ask you about threats, because this is something that has just been on the rise. I know you have been the subject of threats. Um, many, many people have. And a man was just in, indicted for threatening uh, Fonnie Willis, as well as, of course, the Fulton County Sheriff. Uh, Fonnie Willis revealed earlier this year that her office was receiving some pretty vile messages, which I am not going to quote, but extremely vile and offensive and threatening. How much do you think the former president's rhetoric has contributed to these type of threats that we're seeing against prosecutors and others in the legal system. It is absolutely connected. The, the former president has been blithe in his willingness to use invective to make his points. And he, I think, unfortunately ignores that people who hear him do not see it as rhetoric. They see it as instructional. And as someone who has seen my threat level increase when he sends out a, a tweet or makes a comment, I know that there is a connective tissue between his willingness to demean and undermine and to cast aspersions and the response of the public to say that this is an instruction manual for how we should respond and defend Donald Trump or defend some ethos that we think is true. You ran against Brian Kemp and you've been outspoken about the impact that he and others have had on suppressing voters and voter laws uh, across the state. His um, role in speaking out against what Donald Trump did leading up to 2020 and the role of some other Republicans has received a lot of attention. So it was all over the indictment, maybe led in part to the indictment. Do you worry that that's going to give him and others a free pass for what they've done to suppress voters in the past, that people will forget about that? It already has. Uh, Brian Kemp did not commit a crime, uh, which is what Donald Trump called on him to do. And, and I applaud his refusal to commit a crime. I applaud his refusal to overturn an election that was rightfully conducted. But that does not create a hero. Doing your job is the expectation we, we should have. And one of the challenges of the last eight years has been a lowering of our threshold for what we expect of public officials. It is insufficient that you are lauded for simply doing the job you were hired to do and then you get to erase the bad you continue to do. 
the work done by Brian Kemp and Brad Raffsenberger to undermine access to the elections for average Georgians continues to reverberate. And it is a terrible, terrible, terrible stain on our democracy. You don't get to claim that you are a defender of democracy when you are still engaged in behavior that undermines it. I can very easily separate. Yes, thank you, Brian Kemp, for not suborning a terrible action. But that does not exempt you from the bad actions you've already committed. More of my conversation with Stacey Abrams is coming up after this break. You'll hear her thoughts on the race for president as we mark one year to Election Day. Stay with us. Hey, it's Mel Robbins. Let's cut to the chase. There is a change you want to make right now, but you're waiting to feel motivated. You don't need motivation. You've got me. You can change your life anytime you want. And when you're ready, the Mel Robbins podcast is here to help you with inspiration and simple science-backed tools to help you create a better life. Listen to me and you'll feel motivated. All right. Listen and follow the Mel Robbins podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. When it comes to teaching kids and teens about money, practice makes perfect. That's where Greenlight comes in. With a debit card and money app of their own, kids learn to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest. Parents send instant money transfers, create custom chores, and automate allowance, while kids track their spending, set savings goals, and practice money skills they can use today and for life. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com podcast. That New York Times poll I mentioned earlier marking a year out from the election, one of the crucial battleground states where Donald Trump leads Joe Biden in that poll is Georgia, where Trump is up six points. Now, it's important to remember a lot can change in a year. I've done a lot of presidential campaigns, I can promise you that. But one thing that will not change is the major role Georgia, Georgia voters will have in deciding the outcome. No one understands that better than Stacey Abrams. During our conversation, I asked her about President Biden, the threat of a third-party challenger, and the one issue that could tip the scales, the crisis unfolding in the Middle East. So much is going to be centered around the outcome in Georgia, because we are a year out uh, now uh, from the from the election in 2024. You helped drive turnout in the state that was crucial to President Biden's win in 2020. Are you satisfied with the job he's done as president, what he's delivered on? I think President Joe Biden has been an exceptional president on a range of issues. He has overperformed expectation. He has navigated incredibly difficult circumstances. And he has shown that he is willing to stand with the people of Georgia, with the people of this country, to move the nation forward. We have to remember what we face if we want to continue to hold on the progress we've had. But we can't ignore the fact that people's lives are harder. And this is not because of the president. It is because of global issues and international challenges and market conditions and a whole host of things that don't matter to you when you're sitting at your kitchen table. But for elected officials and those of us who want to see people show up and vote and participate and reelect Joe Biden, we have to meet people where they are. They have baked in the successes they've seen. They need to know what's next. And I think President Biden is doing a good job of laying out what that can look like and painting that picture. There has been, you know, one of the groups that has been um, of, of traditionally Democratic voters that has been dissatisfied with the president in recent weeks is the Muslim American community, um, given his support for Israel um, in their military response to the terrorist attack. Let me start with the substance. I mean, do you agree with those who have been calling for a ceasefire? 
I agree with Secretary Blinken and with Senator John Ossoff and others. We have a humanitarian crisis unfolding. And let's begin with this. Mm. The October 7th attack on Israel is unfathomable. It is horrific. And it cannot be allowed to stand. They have the right to defend themselves. And I am proud that the United States stands with the Israeli democracy. We also know that Gazan families are facing bombardment, food shortages, medical shortages. They are landlocked because the Rafah Gate is insufficient for their exit. And unfortunately, again and again, they have faced the extraordinary trauma, not only of the tragic loss of life, but the loss of children's lives. We have to be able to allow Israel to defend itself, but also hold them accountable for the humanitarian cost of that defense. And so I believe that a ceasefire is one of the tools that could be considered, but there has to be humanitarian operation that does recognize that innocent civilians are paying the price for a terrorist organization's actions. Back to politics. We're all talking about politics, about all of this, but there is this possibility of a third-party challenger. No Labels has kept that option on the table. There are a number of names that are thrown out there. Their argument is that the American people are dissatisfied with both Donald Trump and Joe Biden, and a percentage of people want an alternative. I mean, what do you make of that argument? But also, what do you think the impact would be on the state of Georgia, a key state in determining the outcome here if there's a third party candidacy? While I believe that if you can stand for office and you are qualified, it is your right to do so. I think the structural nature of elections in the United States for the presidency tend to diminish the utility of a third party. I, I think that the satisfaction with President Biden is strong and high. I do not see a third party candidate making inroads in Georgia or many other places. Could it help elect Donald Trump in Georgia? Could it help him win Georgia? I've not seen that third party candidacy will have any real effect. I wanted to ask you about the vice president because she has been under a huge amount of scrutiny through her entire time in office. I think there's a lot of reasons for this, but I want to ask you as a prominent woman of color who's run for office, do you think she would be receiving these same critiques if she was a white man? No. No, not at all. No. We will always question the person behind the person, but we cannot ignore that misogyny and racism remain very prevalent in our politics. And for those behaviors that don't rise to either misogyny or racism, there's also just the difference. Our expectations are set for the traditional white male vice president. She's so what it's always been. It's what it's always been. We are not always great with new. Uh, but more importantly, I know if you filter through the critiques, if you think about how she is castigated, there it is inextricably linked to race and gender. I applaud the poise with which she has responded. Have you ruled out running for office in the future? You're not young. I no, I, I politics is a part of what I am and part of what I do. My approach is to do the work. Politics is one of the tools that I can use to do so. The work that I do supporting small businesses and defending uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion, the work I'm doing with rewiring America on electrifying everything, all of those are facets to get to what I believe in most importantly, which is that we should have the right to succeed, the freedom to be successful, the freedom to dream 
of what can be. And politics is one of the tools that I can use. But for right now, I'm focusing on some other tools. Thank you to Stacey Abrams for spending a bunch of time with me earlier this week. I've got some exciting announcements about some guests who will be joining me on the show tomorrow night. That's coming up after a quick break. We have a jam-packed show on tap for tomorrow night. Pre Barrara and Michael Cohen will join me to recap Donald Trump's testimony in his New York fraud trial. The great, the one and only Steve Kornacki will be at the big board to break down high-stakes elections across the country this week. And Pennsylvania Governor Josh Shapiro will join me as well. That's all coming up tomorrow night at 8 p.m. That does it for me today. Hey, it's Mel Robbins. Let's cut to the chase. There is a change you want to make right now, but you're waiting to feel motivated. You don't need motivation. You've got me. You can change your life anytime you want. And when you're ready, the Mel Robbins podcast is here to help you with inspiration and simple science-backed tools to help you create a better life. Listen to me and you'll feel motivated, all right. Listen and follow the Mel Robbins podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.